turn together to the book of Genesis. This morning we'll be looking at the second half of chapter 4. I just hope, given the past week, that you all have been encouraged to know how quiet and subdued in the pulpit I am. I don't know that I can possibly keep the same energy level as Dr. Madero's, but I will follow in his footsteps as we turn and look together at what might at first glance appear to be an unimportant passage in the Bible. But I'm learning very quickly that there is no portion of Genesis that is unimportant. Let's look now. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. This is the very Word of God. It is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. And he knew his wife again, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call Upon the name of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us this, your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would use it in our lives, that you would teach us from it, and that you would change us by it. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is a distinction in the world that we like to speak about. It's a distinction between the sacred and the secular. You know, when someone in your family goes off to college and you warn them about all those secular humanists that they will meet and that they shouldn't live a secular life and that they shouldn't get involved in secular things. 
And on one level, it is good to understand that there is a difference between the world and the things of God. But on the other hand, the difficulty can come in that we can reject everything that does not fit a category of sacred. This was taken to its greatest heights in the medieval period where all of the ordinary professions were seen, were seen to be useless or perhaps even negative. If you were really to do something proper, you had to be a monk or a nun. There's an opposite problem that occurs too, though. And that is that anything that is termed sacred automatically becomes proper. So we take a whole host of things, and if you'll forgive the analogy, we baptize them, and then all of a sudden they become good because they happen in the context of the church. This end of chapter 4 teaches us something different, that the true divide is not between what happens in the church and out of the church, between the secular and the sacred. The true divine is between those two seeds that our Lord spoke of in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, who will ultimately be Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent. You see... It is not, strictly speaking, the things that you do. It is the heart that you have that produces the things that you do. And so, this morning we will look at the difference between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in the building up of society. We'll first look at Cain and his line. And we will see... An attitude that is not just post-garden, not just post-first sin. It's an attitude that is in our neighborhoods, in our places of work. Perhaps it's an attitude in some of our homes. That attitude is that we don't need God. We can do without Him. We're plenty capable on our own. The problem is, is that that attitude leads swiftly to a statement that comes out that says we don't want God. We don't need God. We don't want God. And then finally, we will turn and look at the line of the woman and see that our only hope is in God. Not only do we need Him, not only should we want Him, but our only hope is in Him. Well, let's begin then by looking at the attitude that comes swiftly on the heels of the fall. An attitude that says, we don't need God. You see this here. Cain, you'll recall, has killed his brother Abel. And he has been punished by the Lord. He has been punished and told that he is under a curse. And the ground will no longer yield for him. Not only... Will it be thorns and thistles? It will not even yield in that context. And he will not have a permanent place to dwell. He will be a wandering vagabond. And in verse 16, we see this come to fruition. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the Hebrew word Nod means wandering. So the wanderer left for Wandertown. 
And he has no steady place to stay. And he should know that this is the case because he is under a curse. And yet, even though he is under a curse, even though he is guilty before God, even though he has rebelled against God, he is still made in the image of God. Because you see, the first thing that he does is take a wife. He follows God's directive for marriage. It doesn't say he took a woman. It doesn't say he had a gal pal. It says he has a wife. And the second thing that he does is follow God's divine command to be fruitful and multiply. He has a wife and he begins to have children. You see, even though he is rebelling against God, he cannot get out of being made in the image of God. You need to understand something about this. This is another reason to jettison the secular sacred dichotomy. You need to understand that your neighbors are not as bad as they could be. Your co-workers, even the most blasphemous of them, are not as bad as they could be. And you need to understand, my friends, that you are not as bad as you could be. You see, God has created us in His image. And this is something that we should celebrate. This is something we should embrace. It is an opportunity to make a bridge for the gospel. Because every person on earth shares that with us. They are made in the image of God. And therefore, they must be obedient to God. Well, Cain is separated from God. He is a wanderer in the land of Nod. But he is still following after that structure. And what he realizes is, as a man made in the image of God, he still needs a purpose. Have you ever had the experience of someone in your family retiring early? You know what this is like. Someone says, oh, I can't wait to retire. I'm going to get ready. This happened to my father. He was able to retire a couple of years early. He got a buyout. He thought he was able to do all these things. And within about three months, he was looking for another job. Because he could not stand doing nothing. He'd worked every day for 40 years. And he couldn't stand not to be productive. It was built in him. It was a part of who he was. And that's what's happening here to Cain. He can't be purposeless even though he's wandering. And so if you can think of the irony, the wanderer begins to build a city. Not a tent, Phil, but a city. And he is still under this curse, though. So when he builds this city, the language here describes for us that it takes a while. You can imagine, perhaps you know someone like this, where they begin a project. And then they leave off of it for a month or two. And they swear they'll get back to it. And they do. And then they leave off it again. And they go do something else. And they say, well, we'll get, I'll finish it. And they get back to it, right? For some of you ladies, I'm describing your renovations in your home. You know that bathroom or kitchen project that was started in 1990? This is how Cain labors. And he continues to build. And finally, when it's completed, he names it after his son, Enoch. Enoch means dedicated or initiated. And you can almost sense the pride 
in Cain. I have built this city. And I didn't need God to do it. As a matter of fact, God told me I would wander all the days of my life. Look at this, God. It's a city. And it's named after my boy. You can almost imagine. I don't need you. I can do just fine without you. Maybe I can't be a farmer anymore. But I'll tell you what. I'll bring farmers in by the boatload. And they'll have to pay me to live in my city. Now, you may not have ever built a city. But you have very likely been tempted by this exact same thing. You're good at something. You accomplish something. And the temptation is rather than to give glory to God for it, you see it as something that you have done, that you are good at, that others are blessed, that you are around. That was Cain's attitude. He's established the city. But what would life be unless there was at least some entertainment, right? You build a city, you dwell in it, there should be good things to do. And so we now see a series of city dwellers. Cain has a son, Enoch, and Enoch has a son, Erod. And Erod means, after a fashion, city dweller. He's a city boy. He probably has the... Early, prehistoric, pre-flood equivalent of standing on the corner in a leather jacket. He's all about cool in the city. Now, one of the things we need to understand and realize is that cities do not have moral substance. There are many in the church that view the city as the equivalent of something that is bad. And you should never live in a city. You should only live in some kind of rustic, little house on the prairie looking place. And then there are others who say, no, 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 cities are great. You could never live anyplace else. You could never live out in the country. The cities are what God are concerned about. It's a famous phrase now that God is for the city. No, he's not. He's for his people. And his people are found in the city. And his people are found in the country. The value comes from God. And so do not look at the city and immediately think this is bad or this is good. It's about what you do and what's in your heart. So in this city they need to be able to dwell and to live and have some measure of happiness. And so Lamech is then born and he becomes... The first ever rancher. Now, I don't even need to explain that here. If I was preaching in Connecticut, I'd have to explain how that works. I don't have to in Texas. Lamech is kind of the father of the cattle ranchers. I don't know if he fought with the shepherds, but he is the father of all livestock gathering. And so we might also put it that Lamech is the very first grocery store owner. You went to him for food. So you're living in this city. What do you need? You need food. And you need good food. And you can imagine all of the time that would be poured into this. Because these people are brilliant. They're living seven, eight, nine hundred years. Imagine how good you would be at something if you did it for 500 years straight. So you can imagine the quality of the food that is produced. 
But it's not just eating. Then there's also the arts. Because he has sons. And one of the sons is Jubal. And he is the father of those who play the lyre and the harp. So this implies that there is time for leisure. And this is where music comes from. They're making instruments. We start to see a diversification in society. And once again, we, are, we must be confronted with the fact that God works in all sorts of people. Music is not bad because it comes from a descendant of Cain. Some people will say that. There should be no music ever because it comes from a descendant of Cain. It's wicked. It's evil. But that's not true. We should look and we should see that God can even work in the lives of those who rebel against him. It's what we call common grace. Think of all of the beautiful art, sculptures, symphonies, all of that that we have from those who had no thought at all for Jesus Christ. Our world is the richer for it because God is at work We have food, we have art, but we also have production. There's another son who was born to Lamech, Tubal Cain, named after his ancestor Cain. And he is the first metal worker. He might, maybe in our context, we think about it, he's the very first engineer. He puts things together. He probably draws plans up. He works with metals. And so now here we have a very productive society. Actually, all of these names, the Yabal sound that's in these names means to produce, to produce food, to produce art, to produce goods. And then there are the ladies. We don't know much about them except for their names. And I don't think we push this too far, but it's interesting. There is first Ada, whose name means ornament. She's pretty, so very pretty. And then there is Zillah, whose name means sweet voice or tinkling like bells. And then, of course, there is Naamah, who is brought into the scene later, and her name means loveliness. We can't take such scant information and draw everything out about their character, but I do find it interesting that all that is mentioned about these women are superficial characteristics. They don't speak. There's no substance. And we'll see in a minute, they don't make good decisions. How different from Eve, who claims the promise of God in the face of death and says, I have gotten a man or who later we will see, claims the promise of God and the work of God. You see, these women here are not concerned about eternal things, just like the men are not. And so we need to understand here that in our own lives we can be tempted. We can be tempted as men to work ourselves to death and to find meaning in our work. Or we could be tempted as women to find meaning in things that are unimportant and superficial. If you doubt that that is what drives much of the world, just spend about five minutes at the cashier's checkout at a grocery store. 
And you will see how people spend hours and millions of dollars to tell you what dress someone wore to some party. This is saying, we don't need God. We've got everything we need. But of course it doesn't stop there. It goes from we don't need God very quickly to we don't want God. We don't want God. We rebel against what God has laid down. And so we see this here beginning in what we have seen in the fugitive's attempts to evade the effects of the curse that was laid upon him. Cain and his family is trying to avoid the effects of the curse and they're doing it through ingenuity. They're doing it through enterprise and hard work. They're doing it through prosperity. But in the end, it is empty. It is only a physical blessing. There is no thought for God. And we see this quickly degenerate in the person of Lamech. We saw how Cain had taken to himself a wife. And Lamech decides that he can do one better. He goes with the principle, if one wife is good, two's got to be twice as good. Doesn't matter what God has said. Doesn't matter about the design of marriage. He goes out and he gets to himself two wives. Again, it is not two women. It is not two friends. It is two wives. He gathers them together to himself. He is a very prototypical modern man. It's interesting how someone who has lived so long ago could be so modern. He rejects God's order. He has no need for it. He is happy to live a life of his own choosing. And so he takes these two women, Ada and Zillah, to himself as his wives. This is where we learn a little bit about the women. Because they both agree to marry him. Now they should have known that would be wrong. And they should have known even using Lamech's Bad principles, if two wives, two wives is twice as good for one man, then a half a husband is half a, half as good for a lady. And we see this all the time. It's, it's so sad. We see this all the time when they interview Mormons out in the country. Where there's eight wives, ten wives. And they talk about, oh, how wonderful and good it is. They get to spend an evening with their husband twice a month. They get to have dinner with him once every two weeks. Every birthday, he attends on their children. But it's not even a family. It's not according to God's design. And you see, Lamech wants it that way. He is rejecting God's design for marriage and going his own way. And you see, these women are allowing it. And here is something that I must say to you young ladies. Be very careful who you marry. Ada and Zillah decided to marry Lamech and they got a half of a murderous, boastful husband. Who you marry makes a difference. And in the final analysis, ladies, it comes down to you. Your mother's not going to marry the man. Your father's not going to marry the man. Your brother's not going to marry the man. You are. 
You must look at his character. You must look at who he is. And no matter what means you use to find a godly husband, it must be a man who is godly and seeks after Jesus Christ. If you're young, have mom write that on a note and stick it in your Bible. You can use it in a few years. So, Lamech decides that he will go on this way and he starts the grand tradition of polygamy. And you know how well that worked out, right? Abraham with Sarah and Hagar. That ends up with Hagar having to run for her life in the desert. Well, maybe Jacob. Maybe that worked out better. No, that led to the brothers of one wife selling the son of another wife as a slave. Maybe David. No, that led to one of his sons trying to kill him and killing each other. No, not quite. How about Solomon? He had 500 wives, didn't he? Something like that. No, I guess that didn't work out very well either, did it? That wound up dividing the kingdom. No. You see, God's way is the right way. There's a reason why God has designed marriage and not some kind of family co-op. It's because God knows how we're made. Lamech also rebels against God's design, not only for marriage, but for life. He then begins to tell his wives in a very poetic fashion. He must have learned the arts from one of his sons, because this is a pretty good piece of poetry. And it helps to dispel the myth that our first humans were somehow unibrow-wearing, knuckle-dragging cavemen. No. Lamech is a genius. He raises sons who do all kinds of productivity. He's got a plan to remake marriage. He can write poetry. He's a strong man. He's only missing one thing. The Lord. And so what he does is he proves that sin is here to stay in the world. And he begins to not only kill, but to rejoice in it. He escalates the violence. He speaks and boasts about how he has killed a young man because this young man had bruised him. The words here are very light. The word for hit means to bruise Or to lightly hit. And Lamech says, I won't take that. That's an affront to my person. So he kills. This is not that dissimilar to the way that we live our lives at the founding of America. When someone was insulted, they would have a duel and they would kill someone. We're not that far from that now. This happens all the time. Someone steals someone else's pair of sneakers and they go follow them and they shoot them. This is the way we are. We're prideful, boastful. The question that comes to you is, are you that kind of person? Or are you rather a peacemaker? You see, what Lamech could have done was he could have made peace with this young man. He could have instructed him in the way of the Lord. He could have had patience. But instead, he did his own thing. He was rebelling against God. But not just rebelling, he was also rejecting God. Because he actually takes comfort 
in sin. Do you see this? In verse 24 he says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. When he speaks of killing, he uses the same word that is used of Cain killing Abel. He actually says, I'm following in Cain's footsteps, but I'm better at it. I'm a better sinner than Cain. Now think about that. But I ask you this question. Can't we do that too? Have you ever thought or in an unguarded moment boasted that you're better at deceiving people than other people? You have a better poker face. Have you ever done that? That you are better at sinning. You see, this is a temptation we face. Lamech takes comfort in sin and he just presumes that God will look away. He actually presumes that God will forbear with him. And this leads to a complete lack of forgiveness in his life. This phrase, 77-fold, should ring a bell in your mind. He says, if Cain's revenge sevenfold, I'll be 70 times seven. It's the same phrase that our Lord Jesus Christ uses, but in a completely different context. He says that you are to forgive 70 times 7. Not to revenge 70 times 7, but rather to forgive. And you see, Lamech is so bound up in himself that he has no place for forgiveness. And the sin just continues to escalate. Cain had succumbed to sin, but Lamech exalts in it. Cain sought the protection of the Lord, but Lamech looks round to provoke others. You see, the situation gets worse and worse. This is what happens with unchecked sin. Whether it is in the line of Cain or whether it is in your heart, if you do not kill sin, sin will be killing you. So what do we do then? We are a people lost in sin who say we don't need God, who say we don't want God. What do we do? We find out at the end of this chapter that our only hope is God. And you see what this other line teaches us, that we must begin by looking to God. Imagine the situation that they are faced with. It is bleak. Life is sophisticated, but so many people are lost. It's much like our day and age. The fact that you carry around an iPhone and an iPad and your car has GPS and can tell you what you ate for lunch does not change the reality of the lostness of the world. You see, much of the world thinks they can conquer the hate, the lostness, the bigotry, just simply by inventing more and better things. And it cannot be done because it is not in the things, it is in the heart. Our hope is not in building cities. Our hope is not in educating our children. Our hope is not in art lifting us up. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes all of those things worthwhile. He gives meaning to building. He gives meaning to education. He gives meaning to art. 
And you see, Eve recognizes this. She bears a son and she names him Seth. Because God has appointed another son for me. He's the replacement, if you were. And he's not the replacement so that she can dote on him. He is the replacement because she knows that God has predicted, he has promised that the promise will come from the seed of the woman. And she knows that she must have a child to carry forward that line. And do you see what she does here? She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. How much Eve has grown. She's grown through sadness, hasn't she? Could you imagine being Adam? You know that because of what you did, one of your sons murdered another son. And now marriage is under attack. And now more killing goes on. All because of what you started. And you see, Eve has gone from the place where she said, I have produced, in verse 1. God has appointed. You see, she has God-centered view now. She knows that God is in control, that God has planned, that God has promised, that God will bring this to pass, even in a hopeless situation. And do you see how foolish the way of the Lord is in human sight? The way of the serpent to build up is to build cities and artistic expressions and industries. And God says you will counter that sinful tendency by raising godly children. Do you see this? There's no counter plan here. There's no godly city that rises up and builds tanks. There's no better godly art that rises up that fights the ungodly art. It's all about raising a godly seed. It's so simple. But you must trust the Lord. You see, all of these things are being done and all that is being done on the side of the woman is children are born. You can have hope. Because God uses the most foolish means to show His glory. Finally, we see that the hope of the world is in God because they begin to call upon God. It says it here in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now is when worship begins, corporate worship. We might have seen private devotions before, but now they call upon the name of Jehovah. And this carries a multiple meaning. It means they begin to pray corporately to God. They begin to name God corporately, to say that they knew who He was. Worship begins, and it begins with the seed of the woman. You see, they know that is their only hope is to seek the Lord. Their only meaning is to be found in God. So, at the end of the day, where do you find your hope? Where do you look for your meaning? You must look to Jesus. 
You must look to the Lord. You see, when you worship Him, that is the most important thing that you will do. It gives meaning to all the rest of your life. Now, I'm not telling you not to be industrious. I'm not telling you not to love art. I'm not telling you to look at all of those things as bad, but you must look at them in a context. And that context is through the lens of Jesus. That's where you must look. That's where you will find meaning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given to us a description of what it means to follow you and a warning of what happens when we seek our own way. Lord, protect us from ourselves. Change us, O Lord, that we might be more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.